Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 9 again. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26 this morning. Our text this morning is a very personal matter for me. I distinctly remember when I memorized this passage as a little boy of about eight. And I remember as a young person consciously seeking to respond to the Lord's call of discipleship found here. And I truly meant it. But as I prepared to preach this text now so familiar to me after all these years, I realized how little I actually comprehend it. So come with me and let's learn again how our Lord defines what it means to be his disciple. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And there we'll end our reading. I want to break this into two parts this morning, though it's all very interrelated. <clears throat> two truths. <clears throat> the first is this. Follow Jesus to the cross. Jesus called you to follow him to the cross. It's really unfortunate that we have to divide this text out from the verses just before us that we talked about last week, for they're very closely related. Remember last week Jesus was inquiring as to whom the crowds thought he was. One of the prophets seems to be the consensus. Perhaps even John the Baptist or Elijah come back from the dead. But then Jesus asked his apostles a more pointed question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Well, Peter was quick with the right answer. The Christ of God or God's Messiah. But then just when they thought they had it all figured out, Jesus dropped a little information bomb on them that day, announcing that he must suffer, be rejected by the Jewish leaders, and killed, and rise again. The apostles' minds must have been reeling as they tried to sort all that out. The Messiah is going to suffer? The Messiah is going to be rejected by the, his own people? The Messiah is going to be killed? And then with no break in the discussion, after Jesus' announcement of his impending death, Jesus calls these disciples to take up the cross and follow him. Now we're immediately inclined to treat this as figurative language. 
they cross as some kind of metaphor. But these men were Galileans living under Roman rule. They knew what a cross was. They had undoubtedly seen people crucified by the Romans. They had witnessed the ghastly sight of a condemned man carrying his own cross to his own execution. For these disciples, Jesus' words had to sound like a literal call to follow him to death. And indeed, that's what many of them did. According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, six of these twelve died by crucifixion. Philip, Andrew, Peter, Thaddeus, Simon, and Bartholomew. As I try to put myself in their shoes, and then stand in my shoes, I'm struck with the difference between what they heard Jesus saying and what we seem to think Jesus is saying. We too have heard the call of Jesus to follow him, but few of us has thought that being killed was being implied in that. Instead, we've heard the call to follow Jesus in much different terms. Come to Jesus and he will give you peace and rest. Come follow Jesus who can provide that missing part in your life. Come follow Jesus. What do you have to lose? Try him. Come follow Jesus for he will enable you to be all you can be. He will make your life better, your marriage better, your business stronger. But true as some of those things may be, that's not exactly what Jesus said. He called us to follow him to the cross. Actually, there are three commands here, interwoven, each, in, each dependent on the other. The first is the command to deny self. Jesus said to, den- to deny self. The New Testament scholar Walter Lifield points out that the Greek word for deny is the polar opposite of the Greek word for confess. He says, we should therefore on the one hand confess Christ, that is acknowledge him and identify himself with him, but on the other hand deny ourselves. This means that as Christians we will not set our desires and our will against the right Christ has to our lives. We can see what it means to deny someone by remembering how Peter denied Jesus the night that Jesus was on trial. Peter disowned him. He repudiated him. He turned his back on him. That's what Jesus calls us to do in in regard to self. To disown repudiate and turn our back on ourself. John Stott puts it this way, self-denial is not denying ourselves luxuries like candies and cakes, cigarettes and cocktails, though it may include this. It is actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed right to go our own way 
deny yourself. That's the first command. The second command in verse 23, with that kind of self-denial in mind, Jesus calls us to take up our cross daily. Now, this manner of cross-bearing has been greatly misunderstood. Jesus is not primarily talking about martyrdom, for you can't do that daily. That's a one-time deal, you may have noticed. Though you can have daily have an attitude that would not shrink from death. Nor is Jesus talking about enduring life's little troubles, a bad marriage, physical ailments, a child in trouble, a lonely life. God's grace is enough for all those problems, but they are not what Jesus was talking about when he talked about taking up your cross. Instead, Jesus is talking about a practice of giving our lives to serve him, though it means letting our preferences go, abandoning our agendas, our hopes, our dreams, never having the opportunity to pursue things important to us, perhaps, dying inside as things pass us by because we serve Christ. In short, he's calling us to choose to serve Christ despite the high cost to self. Jesus calls us to deny him. He calls us to follow him to the cross. And then the third little command in verse 23 is, follow me. This verb, unlike the other two, is a Greek present tense. That means it's continuing a continuous action, continuing command. It's to be the pattern of our living every day, to follow him. And the truth is, this is what makes denying ourselves and daring the cross uh, palatable. We're not being masochist when we do this. We're not filled with self-loathing. We're not fools who can't see the attraction of the things we forego. We're simply focused on the Savior and find him to be more important and more desirable than the things we leave behind in order to follow him. But having said that, do not be confused. The call to follow Christ cannot be separated from the call to deny self and to take up the cross. There is no call to follow Christ which allows us to do so on our own more acceptable terms. Jesus calls us to follow him to the cross. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He then goes on to give us some specifics in verses 24 to 26, which brings us to our second point. Self-seeking will ruin you. Self-seeking will ruin you. When you've lived a few years, like most of us have, you learn you have to reckon with hidden costs and unintended consequences. You learn that what looks like the cheapest solution may end up being the most expensive. What looks like a simple fix may have repercussions you never dreamed of and only compound the problem. So Jesus warns us of the hidden cost of self-centeredness the unintended consequences of serving ourselves. Self-seeking will ruin you. 
Jesus gives three specifics, one in each of these verses, 24, 25, and 26. First of all, we see that self-seeking will backfire, verse 24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. This is that great kingdom principle of reversal that's true in the kingdom of God, characteristic of the kingdom of God. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And now whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it, will save it. Now these days we've become experts on how to save and savor our lives. We've learned to pursue better medical care and practice healthier lifestyles to preserve our physical lives and extend our lives. We take care to pursue good investments which will hopefully ensure financial health. We seek counsel and, and uh, pursue self-analysis in our pursuit of inner peace and fulfillment. We become experts on managing our time lest any of our precious life slip away from us. So while we now live longer and are more affluent and have more freedom and supposedly understand ourselves better, why are so many people lonely, dissatisfied, and restless, coming unglued, living lives which they themselves admit seem meaningless? Why? Because Jesus is smarter than us. He warned us that our efforts to save our lives, to preserve our life, to cling to our life, would only result in losing. He told us to give them away, to let them go. To spend our lives on others. To give them up completely for his sake if necessary. For in losing our lives, we will find them. What Jesus told us is observably true. Self-seeking will backfire. Only self-giving saves us. You can observe this. Right here in your own church. I guarantee it. Find the busiest person you can find. The one who will do whatever needs to be done. The one who will give himself or herself away even to the least deserving person. And I will promise you, you have found a happy person. One who knows that he or she is loved. One who delights to be part of this church. Loves this church. And then find the most unhappy person you can find. The one who always finds fault with everything. The one who is always contemplating leaving because nobody cares about me here. And I promise, you will have found someone who while constantly seeking something to satisfy themselves, seldom gives themselves away. Seldom serves someone else. Indeed. This is the great reversal of God's kingdom.
It's the opposite of the world's thinking. Self-seeking does not save or fulfill our lives. It backfires and ruins them instead. Second thing we see here in verse 25, self-seeking will bankrupt you. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? In recent days, people have lost fortunes in the economic events. We rightly consider it a crisis going on. But Jesus warns us that even when we are prospering, when the market is up, when our 401k is uh, increasing, when business is thriving, we may actually have a greater crisis developing, which is the bankruptcy of our soul. Now, this certainly applies to the events of death and judgment. As everyone knows, concerning wealth, you can't take it with you. So if we spend our whole life gaining wealth while ignoring our souls, we will find ourselves bankrupt on Judgment Day. But this is not just about Judgment Day. It also applies to our living right now. The pursuit of material wealth, while not an evil in itself, can be an enemy of the soul. It can reduce every endeavor to a consideration of the bottom line. It can so excite our minds and hearts that they become immune to the still small voice of the Spirit. It can cause us to create a whole set of false values, treasuring only those who enhance our personal gain and dismissing others. William Wordsworth lamented this in his famous sonnet, which begins, The world is too much with us, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers, little we see in nature. That's ours. We have given our hearts away. A sordid boon. Jesus' greatest concern is to teach us the nature of discipleship. And he said on a sermon on the mount, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Self-seeking will bankrupt your soul. Then in verse 16, the third thing, self-seeking will bring you shame. Verse 26, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We live in a culture that makes much of image. It matters what people think of us. Oh, I know there are a few of us that naturally are immune to social pressure. Some of us just don't care what people think. But probably most of us want people to think well of us. And so we act in ways that project the image that we think is desirable. And there's not automatically something wrong with that. That's called being pleasant. That's called getting along with people. That's not airing all of our troubles in every social setting. 
But sometimes there's a real danger here. For in our culture, with the possible exception of Lyndon, it's not cool to be a Christian. So what do we say when our conversation turns to the Lord? Worse, how do we react when someone we know and get along with says, Wow, if I didn't know you better, I'd think well, you're one of those Jesus fanatics. In those moments, the temptation to deny the Lord, to be ashamed of the Lord, sneaks in so quickly and so powerfully that we may be caught completely off guard and hear our mouths denying the Lord before our minds can even get started thinking about how to respond. Such denials are not meaningless. Yes, the Lord forgives our cowardly words and restores us again as he did Peter, who denied the Lord three times in one evening. But such denials easily become a pattern of loving the world and preserving self more than we love the Lord. And so Jesus warns us of the consequences. If you are ashamed of me here, I will be ashamed of you on Judgment Day. Self-seeking will bring eternal shame. A couple of weeks ago I made a point of the fact that as we read the Bible we must discern that there are some passages that were written specifically perhaps to the apostles and, and apply only secondarily to us. I wish this were one of those passages. I wish it said, you twelve, this is what discipleship means for you, but it's not. Verse 23 tells us specifically that Jesus finished speaking to the twelve and then spoke these things to all his disciples. You see, what Jesus presents us here, to us here, is not a special professional track type of discipleship for pastors and missionaries and people who we expect to give themselves to Christian service. Oh no, this is Discipleship 101. This is the freshman course for everyone. There is no such thing as following Jesus which does not include denying yourself, taking up your cross every day, giving your life away, wasting it on the Lord and on others, foregoing wealth in favor of more important things, and being willing to endure shame for your relationship to Jesus. This is what disciples do. Do you? These things are true for all of us, but we live them out differently in different contexts. As I said up front, for me, this is a very personal text. This is where the battles are fought in my soul. Of course, for me, the struggles come with the responsibilities of my ministry, which often seem to be sucking the life out of me, especially the responsibility of preaching God's word. For you, the struggles appear elsewhere in your work, in your family. One day several years ago, as I felt completely spent from preaching, 
I struggled with what self-denial was meaning for me and whether I was really willing to pay the price, which had ended up being much more than I anticipated. I wrestle, as I wrestled with that in my own heart, I wrote one of these psalms of my life that I write for myself sometimes. And so with some fear and uh, uneasiness, I'm going to read it to you this morning, though it's very personal. Not to set myself up as an example, but so you know, this is our common struggle as Christians. But it's worth the struggle. This is a psalm when spent from preaching. Lord, I remember a boyhood promise made with a token stick tossed on a bonfire, giving myself to you. Now that fire is crackling hot, Lord, consuming for real my energy, my emotions, my youth, my relationships, my treasures, my life itself. But for this you chose me, cut me to size, aged me, removing the sap of self, hardening the grain, all to now feed this glorious blaze, the proclamation of your word. So when embers cool, stoke again, Lord. Push me closer still to you, consuming fire. Make what's left of me burn brighter, hotter, till there's only ashes, holy ashes, from which I'll rise with joy to proclaim again, purely at last, your worthiness. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we easily commit ourselves to you with words. And we mean it. But when the fire crackles and the heat is on and denying ourselves and taking up our cross and losing our life become present realities. Oh Lord, we always tempted to rethink that commitment. Grant us, Lord, grace for discipleship. To follow our Savior unconditionally. Every day. Good times and bad. When it seems we're in a hopeless situation. As well as when it when we experience great joy. Be gracious to us, Lord, and grant us faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.